I love that hymn. And I love this time, this opportunity to be in the Word together. And, and I have to tell you, as a, as a pastor, um, I'm appreciative of your attention while I preach. And I understand in a world where our attention spans are growing shorter and shorter, I so value the fact that you show up and, and give this time, hopefully not to me, but to, to this. Um, and I encourage you, if you're going to listen to any part of my time up here, this is the part, this first 30 seconds as I read this scripture, that I'd, I'd encourage you to really zone in on. And if God takes you someplace from the scripture and you're, <laughs> you're fading away from my words after that, that's okay. I, I, hope, I, I hope we can all go together with with where this takes us, but I know it doesn't always work that way. But this, let's all do this together. Let's listen to this together, the Word of God. The Word this morning, once again, comes from the Beatitudes. We're going to focus on verses 7 and 8, but I'm going to read this whole section um, as we keep the whole context in mind to remember what has what we've been looking at the previous few weeks and, and also see what's lying ahead. But this morning we're going to be talking primarily about mercy and purity of heart. But let's read the word together. Listen to the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, Jesus, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. Guide us as we hear it, as we think on it, as we seek to live in it and by it. Lord, the power of your Spirit, speak to our hearts and lives now. Guide my words, guide all of our hearts as we stand before your word, as we stand before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mercy and purity of heart. These are the premier qualities of life in Christ. The focus of the Beatitudes shifts this morning from characteristics that have made us to be able to be in the kingdom of God, which is the, the theme of it all, 
to characteristics of those who now live in the kingdom of God. These are the qualities of someone in whom God's reign has been working. It, it, it makes me think of the people who have wandered in the wilderness. After time, the effects of, of being slaves begin to dissipate. And then they get to a place where their journey in the wilderness is ending, and they, and they come to see across the Jordan River into the promised land. And, and they get a glimpse of what their new life is going to be like, a, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. These characteristics are, are a glimpse of what new life in Christ is like as we are changed, as we transform from, from slaves to sin to new life in Christ. Becky Pippert tells a story about when she was a graduate in a graduate psychology class at Harvard learning psychodynamic psychotherapy. And using a case, the, the professor was describing how a man was able to see just how much hostility he had toward his mother and how much damage that had done throughout his life. And Pippert said it was, a, it was a great lecture, and at the end of it, she raised her hand and she asked, what if the man responds to these revelations to his therapist and says, thank you so much for helping me see these feelings and, and their effects throughout my life, but how can I forgive my mother? And the great Harvard lecturer looked at Pippert and said, well, I, I guess what the therapist would say is lots of luck. And, and she asked him, what good is therapy if you can't teach somebody, once he sees what his feelings are, how to deal with his feelings? And the professor, after more discussion with the whole class, concluded, listen, I, I appreciate your concern, but if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. To diagnose the problem is fundamental. It is absolutely important. It is vital, but it's not enough. We need to know what to do. The past few weeks, we looked at the condition of the heart that can be changed by God. And this next couple of weeks, we're going to look at hearts that have been changed by God. First, we are going to see transformed relationships with everyone. Relationships marked by mercy. And secondly, we're going to see a new relationship within ourselves. Not, not just a new psychology, but a new heart that can best be described as pure. And, and next week, we're going to look at a new purpose, a new direction in life called peacemakers. But first, first, let's start with mercy. Mercy. Mercy is, a, is the foundation of all relationships in the kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. It is the foundation of God's relationship with, with us, his mercy for us. And it becomes the foundation of our relationship with others. 
mercy, mercy actually is a little different than grace. They are often used synonymously. Um, but where there is a distinction between the two, they're not exclusive of each other, but where there is a distinction between the two meanings, grace is a loving response when love is undeserved. Mercy is about empathy for someone. Don Carson writes, Mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. Grace answers to the undeserving. Mercy answers to the miserable. You can have grace without mercy. Do something for someone undeserving but without feeling empathy. But you can't have mercy without grace. You can't feel this sort of care without the offer of love. Mercy is to be moved by, by the suffering and need of somebody else. Even when, they, even when they may not see it in themselves, sometimes we have the eyes to see what their need really is and to respond to that, that, that suffering. It always has some cost to ourselves that response of mercy. I've heard so much in the past few years about transactional relationships. And our society, our our government, our economy is is built on this, and, and there is a place for that. We make a deal. I give you something, and you give me something that we've agreed upon in return. It's a it's a contract. And, and it can even be an unspoken, a, a social contract, but it's a, it's a deal that we make. It's a way we contribute while we also get back what we want or what we need. But mercy is a, a fundamentally different kind of relationship. It recognizes the cost of things, but does not consider what we need out of the relationship. Still, it gives. Some people have nothing to offer back. Others are not going to appreciate your gift, or they're they're even going to try to take more when you give them something. But that doesn't matter to mercy. All that matters is the need of the one being given to. And 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 it's a whole fundamentally different way of relating to people. And it is a Christian way. This is not a transactional contract. This is a loving covenant. And they have completely different motivations, completely different sources for fueling them. Keller notes that the two forms that mercy takes in the Bible, the first form is is forgiveness. Matthew 18 tells the, is the story of the, about the great king who forgives the servant his debt of 10,000 talents, which is a, more than a lifetime of work. The king did it because he had mercy on his servant. And he expects someone who has experienced that, that enormity of mercy would have the same relationship with others. But you also see the cost to the king. Forgiveness, forgiveness always bears a cost. Mercy takes on the debts. It takes on the weight, the troubles, the hurts, 
the loss of others, and it bears them with and for them. When you forgive someone, you absorb the cost, you absorb the debt, but Christians forgive. You see it in Stephen forgiving those who are stoning him in that very moment. Just as he had been forgiven by Jesus on the cross. Another form of mercy in the Bible is very simply costly giving. Think of the Good Samaritan as he comes upon the devastated traveler on the road. It's, it's not forgiveness that he provides the traveler. He takes the time, he takes the wealth of friends and money that he has, and he helps that person heal and get back on his feet. You can see how part of the burden fell on him, on the Samaritan. The burden of getting him off the ground literally, of putting that effort in, as well as the, the time and the cost of doctors and a, and a place to stay. He takes that on himself. That's mercy. Being merciful is to, is to carry some or all of the weight for another person. You, when you see someone struggling to carry something, you just you grab an end. I, it makes me think of when I'm getting on a plane and I, and I see someone struggling to get their luggage in the overhead compartments. And, and either someone does it for someone else who's not tall enough or strong enough, but sometimes you just put one hand on an edge of a, of a piece of luggage and you help them push it up. You bear some of the weight. You show mercy. Forgiveness and, and costly giving are, are just two of the ways we live as merciful people. And this is what, it's what makes up a church. This is what makes up a church. It, and it makes a church stand out in the world as well. I haven't been here that long. I've been here since September. But honestly, from day one, I've seen people who are here who gives so much of what they have and of what they are for the needs of others. I, I think of the, the Lothians. I don't know if Dan's even in the service because he's probably with the children. And, and Melody and Dan started the, uh, the children's ministry, restarted the children's ministry you know, the day I came, the first, my first Sunday. I see Reuben caring for kids, and it's not just coming out of his responsibility as part of his job. I see it coming out of his heart, and he's reaching not just our church kids, he's, he's reaching out into the community to kids who would never considered walking into a mysterious building called a church. So many of you, so many of you that I've spent time with these past months in the SWAT meetings, I've seen your heart for the church and for people. And, and, and the heart of mercy is at the center of this church and of each of you. And I, I do, I, I want to bring up that reconciliation process once again. I encourage you to participate in it this week as we work through hurts because we live in a broken world and, and no church is unaffected by that. And, and yet we need to face whatever it is in ourselves, in our church, in our world with mercy of even helping, letting others help bear the burden as we move forward together because we believe that that is part of that work 
of transformation that God is doing in us, in, in people and in a church that is marked by mercy. For Christian, empathy, the empathy of mercy is at the heart of every relationship. It's not the same thing as pity, which looks down upon others. It's mercy, which very simply puts others before ourselves. And, and that's at the heart of every relationship for a Christian. Having others' needs at heart. We focus on, on, on others, not for what they can give to us, but on how we can love them. That's mercy. And those who can give it can do so because they have received it. They've received it first from Jesus and from others as well. That's mercy. But we also look at purity of heart this morning. Purity of heart. This is not so much about our relationships with others, but about the core of who we are the core of each one of us. We tend to think of our heart as the center of our emotions. Our heart is our emotions in opposition to our head. We, we split these two things. But the Bible, in that time in the world, heart does not split them. It is the combination of everything. It is the, the heart and the head, the, the emotions and the thought. Rather, the heart is the root of everything. Radix in Latin is radical. It is the bottom of things. Our heart is the place out of which our authentic self flows. Everything. Our thoughts, feelings, and actions. It's who we really are. What we really want, what we really feel, what we really think, and what is really driving us and motivating us. That's our heart all of it together. And the Bible tells us purity of heart is the mark of a real Christian. It's, it's not just that our thinking and our feeling, our morality and choices have changed. Underlying all of that is our changed heart, a transformed heart. That's what God is working on. He's working on our hearts all the time. He's redeeming our hearts. And that, that means that he's redeeming our whole selves. That's what it means to be born again. Our hearts are transformed. The key word in all this is, is purity. It simply means single. No mixing, no duplicity. Kierkegaard titled one of his works, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. In the Old Testament, period of, purity of heart always meant purified from idols, from anything else that has a hold on your heart. Remember the words from Psalm 24 from that song, that old, that old song, give us clean hands, give us pure heart. Let us not lift our soul to another, to an idol. An idol can be something wonderful, but it takes the place of the center of everything, the best of us. It becomes our source of security and our source of value, something you live for and would even die for. It can be a sense of 
power and control, but the truth is you're, you're not going to be able to make control of control of everyone or of all circumstances or even control of ourselves. An idol can be seeking love from someone else. It's an idol when you look to other people to love and adore you, to like you and admire you for your fulfillment. You need, when you need that, to, just to feel valued. And when, they, and when people don't feel that way towards you, it's crushing. When that's the case, you know it's an idol. Your idol can be a, a feeling of satisfaction or elation. This, is, this has very much become an idol in our world, particularly of millennials. So, so you search YouTube stories for that rush of feeling or, or a great shopping purchase or, or just the right amount of drink that takes you to that place of satisfaction but the but when you're not there it becomes all about finding that feeling of elation or adrenaline again there's nothing wrong with achievement or excellence or elation or love but when they take over your heart and become your whole focus your singular pursuit and will then they're idols and the Old Testament called us to be pure, purified of idols. And the New Testament calls us to a pure heart. Idols, idols are us seeking to provide meaning to our lives apart from God, from, from trusting God. This purity is about the direction of our heart at its core doesn't mean we're perfect or there's not other things going on in our lives. But our primary direction, where we are headed. Keller describes this purity saying, a heart that has made a decision in a sense and said, I know what my center is. And I know what the idols are in my life. And I'm after God. I'm after the real God, the true God, the only God who won't enslave me, the only God whose burden is light. There are ways, even just being religious can be an idol, as opposed to a purity of heart for God. This kind of religiousness can, can take on many different forms. It can be all about being right, right thinking, perfect opinions, that's all in our head and there's no heart and it doesn't change your behavior and there's no love. Or it can be all about volition, about our, the, the power of our will. We're going to do everything right. It's all about duty and no thought about passion. It's, it's being a Pharisee. It can, it can be all about our emotions, about just... Our emotions being there all the time. And, and you measure everything by how it feels. And so when you lose that feeling, you feel like you've lost God. And so you always have to, to feed this in yourself. Whole churches are, are built around providing this feeling in people, particularly postmodern churches. But it doesn't care and trust in what is real. Being religious can be an idol that, that churches are all too susceptible to. 
What we should care about is hearts that are purely focused on God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to this. Keller tells the story of an old black and white movie that he saw in a, about a world-class pianist. Early in the story, the, the pianist was brutally attacked while he was playing, and he was left for dead. And when he miraculously recovers, he has complete amnesia, and he didn't even know who he was, and neither in the situation does anyone else. And, and he begins a journey of just wandering around. And he wanders around for a long time. But in his wandering, whenever he gets near a piano, he feels both a, a, a strong pull, pull and an utter dread. He feels a pull because that's where he lived most of his life, even though he, he didn't remember. But he also feels this dread because that's where he was attacked. Finally, though, one day, he gathers the courage and he sits down at the piano, doesn't even know why, and he's, he's just felt so empty and pointless about everything, and he had to do this. And then, then he put his fingers on the keys and they begin to play. And to his, his own, and everyone else's shock, it's beautiful. And it's natural. And it pours out of him. This, this is what he was built for. What he's longed for. And it fills his heart. Everything that had been bottled up inside comes, comes pouring out in his playing. And tears are streaming down his face. Purity of heart toward God is what we are built for. To see God. To see Him face to face. And it's at once that we long for, it's at once what we long for and what terrifies us. That, that fear can keep us wandering around looking for anything else that might satisfy us. And, and sometimes wanting to go back to slavery in Egypt. But it, none of it's going to satisfy. It's all distraction. It's all idols. And the best that we can do is, the best it can do is keep us enslaved from reaching where our hearts actually are longing for. To see God. Charles Wesley wrote it in his hymn, which a, a part of his hymn that I've always loved, calling us to this purity of heart. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. When I think of purity of heart, I, I think of John Piper's definition of worship. John Piper defines worship this way. He says, the essence of authentic corporate worship, which we're doing right now, the essence of it is the collective experience of heartfelt satisfaction in the glory of God. Or a trembling that we do not have it and a great longing for it. We long 
to see God. That is our worship. And that is our heart. Purity of heart is the same thing as worship. In, in this now and not yet of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, it is both our satisfaction in seeing God in, in, and His hold on our attraction to Him and our longing for the sight of Him where we do not yet have it. Either way, our hearts are pure in that. That is our love, His presence, the sight of Him. That is the singular focus of our mind, our feelings, our will, our whole personality, of our whole heart. Let's always remember our aim is not merely having the right thoughts or the good feelings or the moral actions. The aim is a pure heart, the transformed by the merciful salvation of our Lord heart. And God does that by the sight of him and by the longing for the sight of him. Mercy is this pure heart poured out on others. It's the promised blessed life of one in the kingdom of God. And, and we are not fully there yet. Very often our relationships are more transactional than mercy driven. Our hearts are more broken than they are pure. But as we look from the years in the wilderness, we can see how God has been with us the whole time. Working on our hearts, pouring out His mercy upon us. And we can look across the Jordan into the promised land and know Jesus' mercy for us. And we look, can look to God Himself and see him. Let's pray. Lord, mercy and purity of heart, they seem like overwhelming things, and yet they are the qualities of those who, who live in your kingdom. The qualities we know of those who started off and are broken poor in spirit, who are meek, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Lord, those, those first ones sound like us. I pray, Lord, by the work of your hand, by your transformation in us, we may also more and more every day be those who are merciful and pure of heart. God, thank you for your word, for your promise. Thank you for your work. Thank you that, that we, we can gather and worship you. For you are worthy. It is your love, your grace, your mercy, and the sight of you that we long for and that we celebrate. God, thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.